is that to know where things where you are? So nobody walks off with it. You can't <laughs> run on camera. Hey, white. Be a good video. And greetings. First Liberty Live is on the road. We're in New Orleans. We're in the Big Easy because one of First Liberty's cases is being heard today at the Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. And uh, we're looking forward to letting you listen in on the argument audio that will be coming from inside the courtroom. Kelly Shackelford, of course, is president, CEO, and chief counsel of First Liberty. Hey, Kelly. Hey, Stuart. What are we looking forward to today? What's about to happen? Well, this is uh, an argument in uh, probably the biggest, most watched case in the country that's not at the Supreme Court. Uh, this is about really not just the Navy SEALs, but our entire military, because what has happened here, this was the first win in the country during the mid of, uh, midst of COVID. It resulted in, in wins across the board later uh, for not only our Navy and, and our SEALs, but for the Air Force, for the Marines. And so really we've had thousands and thousands of military families who would have been thrown out of the military. Our best, I mean, some of our best people uh, because of nonsense and because of violations of the law. And that's been stopped, but they're trying to overturn that. We're now at the Federal Court of Appeals, and uh, we're, we're going to do everything in our power to make sure it's not. But people get to listen to the real oral argument. They're going to say, oh, you didn't need to give this injunction. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, you should wait until we do worse things to the Navy SEALs and all the people that are serving us. Uh, and then they're going to argue, well, this is all moot. Uh, because uh, there's now been Congress has been so disgusted with what we're doing that they have said we can't have the mandate anymore. Right. So they've taken away the mandate. But they're still punishing all these guys. They're saying, okay, well, we can't kick you out, but we can say, well, if you hadn't had a vaccine, then you can't get on an airplane and, and fly to California for training, which means in the military, you can't advance, you can't train, you can't do anything. This is messing with their career this and is, their future. It's, it's trying to force all these people out of the military. So it really is, it, it's not only wrong and really stupid and really harmful to the military, but it's incredibly disrespectful of the courts because the courts have told them to stop this and they've instead tried to find new ingenious ways to not officially kick them out, but to make their life just horrible where there's no future for them. And the result we're seeing, I mean, the, the recruitment levels are horrible. People are, are, you know, and these are our best people they're trying to throw out Absolutely. and new people are not coming in. So this is a really important case for religious freedom for every person who serves in our military. Uh, but it really is is even beyond that. It's for the, for the health of our military itself. I mean, we can't have an administration or a military that thinks it doesn't have to follow the law and it can get rid of all the religious people who, you know, instead of following the law, they just say, well, we'll just throw them all out. In just a few minutes, we're gonna let people hear the audio of what's going on in the courtroom. I just wanna walk through just to explain some of the technical stuff you were just talking about as far as the legal part. This is about a preliminary injunction. Right. Real simply, what does that mean for the rest of us? That means we're not to the final part of the court, but we need an injunction to hold things in place until we get to the end of the trial. Right. So they can't throw these guys out. They can't do things uh, to them. So this is an injunction to say, stop, we're gonna put this in place. And, and this is why they're gonna argue, well, you don't really need that. 
uh, because we're just what we're doing is just great. And you just got to defer to the military, even when we violate federal laws. <laughs> this is their argument. And then secondly, it's going to be it's all moot because we've gotten rid of it. But the reality is they haven't gotten rid of it. They're they're punishing all these people. And so they're going to hear three judges I was gonna on say, the panel. I want you to set the scene a bit. This is not like you see on Blue Bloods in a criminal court. This is an appeals court. So there's not one judge, there are... There are three judges. There's and no jury. No jury. What's going to happen is the DOJ, the government, is going to get up first. Uh, those judges are going to hit them with questions. And then at the end of that time, our lead counsel, Heather Hacker, is going to get up. She's going to have about 20 minutes. And then it's going to be over. You're not going to hear a ruling. You're not. But what's going to happen is they will have made their decision probably by then. They will go back in a room. They will vote uh, later in the week. And they will start writing the opinion very important case. I encourage people to be in prayer um, for Heather, for the judges. These are great judges. Uh, Judge Jim Ho, uh, just one of the brightest uh, legal minds in the country. Uh, Judge uh, Kyle Duncan uh, was actually the head of the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty uh, before he came on the court. So he wow. he understands religious freedom. Yeah. Uh, and Judge Graves, who's been on the court a long time, two uh, uh, Democrat, uh, one Democrat appointee, one Republican appointee. But I, I think you you're going to hear some, I mean, two Republican appointees, one Democrat yes. appointee. I think you're going to hear some really good questions. And uh, give me give me a quick bio on Heather Hacker. How, what's her connection with us? Well, Heather, uh, her husband is actually uh, the head of our uh, litigation division. He before that, he was the head of all litigation at the Texas Attorney General's office, a very experienced attorney. And Heather is as well, uh, was in the appellate section, argued appellate cases. And uh, she's arguing this case, has done a number of cases and has really, really shepherded this case the whole way through, along with Mike Berry. And uh, she is, she's got the eye of the tiger right now and is ready to go. All right, very good. <laughs> we, we've got about 10 minutes before it starts. I know you've got to run to get inside. Is there anything else you want to share before I let you go? No, I would just say, you know, what these SEALs have done is really brave. I mean, we know how brave they are already, but they're, they're really standing up in a way that could destroy their career because of their faith. But you know what? If they hadn't have done this, I, I fear what would have happened to our military. Um, I mean, throwing out all of our best people with, with nonsensical reasons and just because of their religion. Let me let me make clear to people, yeah. if you ask for an administrative exemption, you got one. A medical exemption, you got one. But every religious exemption request denied. Okay, it's just pure religious. It has nothing to do with any sort of medical issue or anything else. The inspector general of the United States internally investigated, and this leaked, yeah. but he said, what are you doing? You're violating federal law. So they're just flaunting the law. And they know it. And they know it, and, and they're doing it against our best people. So this is, the, thank goodness for these Navy SEALs. We now have an injunction protecting them and the entire Navy, and now we've got to go into court today and make sure and keep that. All right, very good. I, I want to give you just an opportunity for your run off. What can people be praying for while this is going on as they listen into it? Be praying for God to lead this argument to the judges to work on their hearts, to, to work on them when they're coming together later in the week. And just for this to be a great decision that not only protects these Navy SEALs and every person in the Navy with our class action, but really protects our entire military. And, and we can start having a, a more healthy military again. That they've, they've done so much damage through this. I mean, Congress has had to act. That's rare. Yeah. Um, and now we've got courts in place. Let's, let's hope that we can turn this around. Uh, we've got too many wonderful people to lose all of our best people from the military. Very good. Kelly, thanks for the work you do. I'll let you get inside. 
watch out for traffic on the way yep, across the street. I will do that. I will do that. <laughs> Thank you for being a part of really a historic case. And uh, we'll all be praying, and I'll be inside praying. God right. bless you. Thank you, Kelly. Uh, it's festival time here in New Orleans, so traffic is a little wacky. I don't know what it's usually like, but right now there's a, a lot of uh, uh, high-speed travel, shall we say, going on on the streets here. It is a gorgeous day, by the way, in New Orleans. We've got blue skies, temperatures are mild here, so it, it feels like springtime, even though in the middle of February. So it's a, a lovely day. Uh, the building behind us, as we talked about, that is the building for the Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. And to give an idea, for those of us that don't deal with this all the time, cases start out at the district court level. You can kind of think of that like elementary school. There's one in every neighborhood. There are lots of them. At that level, one judge hears the case, makes a determination. And then if there's an appeal, it comes up to this level, which is the appeals court. There are 17 judges on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. And the word circuit, by the way, comes from the days when they literally would get on a horse and do a circuit around the portion of the country that they're working with. And those 17 then, uh, from those, they chose three randomly, and that happens with every case. So you heard Kelly mention the three that we'll be hearing this one today. Again, that's random selection. We like to think it's providential selection, but that's uh, out, kind of outside the courtroom. You can't really claim that from a legal sense. But that's this level. Uh, of course, the one level, of, and that's kind of like if you were junior high school, you might have a couple of those in your school district. But then it goes up to the Supreme Court, and that's like all of these feed into the high school, if you will. And that's where you have the nine justices of the Supreme Court. Most cases are solved at this level. This is where they end. Most cases never get to the Supreme Court for consideration. So this is very important what's happening today. I've got Chris Friend here with me. He's our director of public relations at First Liberty. Hey, Chris. Hey, Stuart, how are you? I'm good, thank you for being here. Absolutely. Uh, are we getting a lot of interest in this case from the media? This is one of the most high profile cases that we've had since I've been at First Liberty in the last five years. And yes, because I think it was such a unique case and such an important case from the beginning and people have uh, really grasped the threat to not just the, the religious liberty of our military, but just the concept that some entity, government entity, could be unaccountable and be able to make decisions that are outside the law, regardless of, of what government entity is, but especially the entity that's armed. Yeah. We really would like them to have a, a, an authority that can hold them accountable. And so I think this has really gripped a lot of the nation. One comment that I regularly hear, we see it in social media, I've had people ask me personally is the idea that when you join the military, you give up all your freedoms and rights and you have to do whatever they tell you to do. That's true to a point, And it's that point that this case is all about, right? Yeah, I mean, I think we all know that when you join the military, there are certain freedoms that you realize um, you are putting on hold a little bit, um, but there are still federal laws and still, then the Constitution still applies. And so the military isn't outside of that framework. It's very much in that framework. Even President George Washington said that you don't lose your citizenship when you put on the uniform. It was important to realize that there are still rights that go, constitutional rights that go on you as a citizen of the United States. And that's really at the core of this. Absolutely. And I think that one of the preeminent rights is religious liberty, that you're not, you don't give up your faith. You don't have to erase that part of your identity when you enter the military. 
And the military has accommodated faith since our inception. It's been an important part of who we are. As a matter of fact, faith motivates many of the people who join our military. It's, in fact, one of the primary motivators of so many who are in the military. And when our government is saying that no longer matters or your faith isn't important, that makes joining it much less attractive. And I think that's part of the reason why we're seeing recruitment levels at historic lows. And people are saying, I don't know if I want to be part of something that's going to try to erase who I am. Something that struck me about this, we've gotten to meet some of the SEALs and other special warfare folks who are part of this case. They're not named in the lawsuit. We've we protected their their identity. They're, they're pseudonymously, I don't know how to say it, they're, they use pseudonyms in the lawsuit to protect them, which puts them in this weird place because their job is to defend the country, but now they're having to defend themselves against the very country that they defend. It's amazing, but they are so courageous. And you know, we think going onto a battlefield, obviously, is a courageous act. There are few people who will do what a Navy SEAL would do, what any member of the military would do. But doing this is another level of courage. It's they're really putting their their name, well, their, their identity to some degree on the line within the military. Most certainly their career. Folks know yeah. that there are certain members of the military who have a religious objection to this vaccine. We know that. They know their friends and commanders and others around them know that. Um, don't think that they haven't heard about that and haven't faced some opposition to that. And yet these guys are willing to do that. And yes, their careers are on hold. And in some cases, you know, we have a client who uh, is being threatened with having to pay back a large sum of uh, a bonus he received because he's not able to do the job he signed up to do because they won't let him do that job. And now they're threatening to force him to pay that back. So there's a lot of different ways that the military is punishing these guys. We've got about one minute before the official start time inside the courtroom. I can hear bells ringing in the distance. So <laughs> we know it's the top of the hour here in New Orleans. Again, we're, we're in New Orleans, Louisiana, outside the Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. We're going to be letting you listen in to what happens in the courtroom in just a moment once they get started inside. The other thing I wanted to mention just as we're wrapping up here is meeting with the, the people that we're representing. They're sincere about this. This is truly based on their religious faith. And it's not just that they're trying to get out of it for other reasons. No, this really is the reason, and they mean it. But it's also true, and this is what really hit me in the heart, is I want people with moral values defending the country. They have to make some unbelievable, literally life and death decisions in a split second. I want them to have a moral foundation for making those choices. I think it's General Boykin who said that a military without morals are mercenaries. We need to have some kind of moral authority over our military, and these are the guys that bring that. They're the ones that are going to say no to doing something that is outside the authority that we've given them. And it's, it has implications not just for them, but for an entire military force and who we are really as a nation. Yep. And that's being decided in just a minute.
and uh, I'm hearing in my ear, we're still waiting on the audio to start in the courtroom. So we'll just chat for another moment here and then we'll, we'll duck out once they begin inside. Again, you're about to hear uh, from the Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, three judges who will be hearing this case. The attorney on our side is Heather Hacker, who happens to be married to one of our, our in-house attorneys at First Liberty. The first to go will be uh, the attorneys for the Department of Justice representing the Navy in this Navy case. And then you'll hear our side after that. Uh, the, the first side, when they go, they'll probably reserve some of their time to do a rebuttal at the end. That's pretty standard. So that's kind of the flow of things that you'll be hearing once this gets, this gets going. And I think what's amazing, it'll be fast. There's only about 20 minutes each side, they and they don't mess around. It'll go quicker than you think. It's faster than a normal Supreme Court argument. So uh, there's a lot of pressure in that 20 minutes to make the absolute best case and absolute best argument. But I think, you know, Kelly mentioned Heather and uh, our, our volunteer attorneys, Hacker Stevens, who have done an amazing job on this case all the way along. And, you know, we couldn't have done this without them and their work. So prayers for Heather and, and her folks and everybody that are in that courtroom and, of course, the judges. Yeah. And this, you mentioned how quickly it goes. It, it is technical, and it is at the highest legal level because the justices, the judges rather, have been reading through all these briefs beforehand that go on for dozens of pages and looking at all the case citations and all that. But I've listened to more than a few of these, and I'm not an attorney, but I can follow it. I mean, you can kind of get, a, get an idea where they're going, and it's really interesting listening to how they, they try to zero in. Uh, you may get the impression that they're going after one side or the other, but often it's really the argument they're going after to try to, to find out where the fine point is. And that's always fascinating to listen to. I think it's very key that, that their questions, we can often hear them as, oh, they, they're adversarial. They, they're not on our side, but they're actually doing that quite Just intentionally. They are starting inside. Very good. Chris, thank you for chatting with us. Thank you for being here. We're just going to let you listen to the argument now, and once it's over, we'll be done. So listen in. First case on today's docket is cause number 22-10077, uh, and it is consolidated with number 22-10534, U.S. <coughs> excuse me, U.S. Navy SEALs versus Joseph R. Biden. Uh, is the appellant ready to proceed? All right, appellee ready to proceed. All right, you may, you may begin. Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the Court, Kaysen Ross for the United States. At issue in these appeals are a pair of preliminary injunctions that prohibit the Navy from enforcing the military's August 2021 requirement that all service members be vaccinated against COVID-19. But pursuant to a congressional directive and over an objection from the Department of Defense, Secretary Austin has rescinded that requirement, and the Navy has issued guidance formally canceling the four policies that the District Court had prohibited the Navy from enforcing. Because those policies no longer exist, the preliminary injunctions afford the plaintiffs no practical relief. This court should accordingly follow its routine practice and vacate those injunctions because these appeals have become moot. So is this based on the distinction between removing and separating people altogether versus merely not deploying them on certain projects, on certain tasks? 
I think the answer is the same, Your Honor. So first, the Navy is not separating any service members because they're not vaccinated against Right. But you're still wanting to not deploy people based on this alleged discrimination. Those questions are hypothetical and speculative, and none of the plaintiffs here have identified any action taken against them on an ongoing basis because they're not vaccinated. So any of their— I thought that's what this whole case was about. Sorry, on an ongoing basis, so moving forward. Because of—the Navy policies would have prohibited taking any adverse action against the plaintiffs while their requests for religious exemptions were pending. And as the district court recognized both in its January 3rd injunction and in the March 28th injunction, no adverse actions had been taken against the plaintiffs because their appeals had not been fully adjudicated by the Navy. So none of them faced any— But you had a policy that allowed for, indeed mandated, I think, all of these various sanctions. And all that's been pulled down, as I understand it, is everything except for the deployment. That's not quite right, Your Honor. And in fact, there was no mandate that service members be separated because they were not vaccinated. There's a very extensive administrative process to consider whether to separate a service member because they're not vaccinated. Additionally, it's not clear at this point whether any of the plaintiffs will suffer any ongoing consequences because of their vaccination status. Any commander's decision on an individual basis with respect to a particular deployment, assignment, or operational decision is not one that this court can evaluate right now because we don't know those circumstances. And religious liberties, fact and context-specific questions, are importantly answered on a case-by-case basis because we don't know the government's compelling interest for a particular deployment or assignment or whether— You've got unquestionably a live controversy at the time of the complaint being filed. And as you just alluded to, this is a policy—this change is a policy you all vociferously oppose. So it sort of seems weird to say that there's no controversy anymore. But the policy no longer exists, Your Honor. So even if the department— Is there any assurance in the record that there will be no deployment decisions made on the basis of vaccination? So two answers. For one, this court has never required such an assurance. In Spell, Amawi, and Freedom for Religious Foundation, which issued just last week, there's no requirement that the government specifically state— I thought the standard was it has to be absolutely clear that the problem will not recur. When the mooting actor— I think the Supreme Court's described it as stringent. That's accurate. But when the mooting actor is the government, then there's a presumption that the government's acting in good faith and not operating in a way to moot the pending litigation. So there's no indication in this record that the government has deliberately mooted the case to avoid this court's adjudication of the merits. In fact, quite the opposite. But I can say, with respect to—as the Navy's representative before this court, that given the prevailing public health guidelines and the state of the virus, there is currently no intention to require universal vaccination of all service members. So that's, of course, not in the record. But I can provide that assurance to you as the representative of the Department of Defense before this court. Well, from that standpoint, what's the harm in keeping the PI and you can proceed on the merits in trial court? I think that's because, as an institutional matter, Your Honor, this court frequently vacates injunctions or orders on preliminary injunctions. I think that the court's decision in Spell v. Edwards is instructive in that point. The governor of Louisiana had issued stay-at-home orders for COVID-19, which were challenged by a pastor in Louisiana. And the district court denied a preliminary injunction. But this court vacated the denial of that relief on appeal because it had become moot because the stay-at-home orders had expired. 
The same logic applies here, if anything, with more force, because the preliminary injunctions operate against public officials and prohibit them from taking particular actions under policies that no longer exist. I think the Court's decision in Freedom from Religious Foundation is particularly instructive on this point, issued just over a week ago and for which we issued a letter to the Court. There, the Court specifically explained that the public interest is impeded when a Court's injunction runs against government officials for a policy that doesn't exist anymore. The same logic applies here. So on this mootness point, Counsel, here the government that ordered the rescission was the Congress. It seems clear to me from the record that the President and the Secretary of Defense were unhappy about it, went along with it, as one does when Congress passes a law. But they went along with it, but they were unhappy about it. And in the very document ordering the rescission, the Secretary of Defense explicitly recognized that vaccination status could be taken into account in deployment, in operational decisions, and in assignments. So why shouldn't I look at that and say, well, there's been a rescission of this August 24th letter, but nothing in that rescission prevents the Navy from doing the very same thing tomorrow. And why doesn't that bear on voluntary cessation? Sure. So I think there's a couple of answers. There's a lot baked into your question, Your Honor. First, in Hull v. Louisiana, this Court held that even the governor of Louisiana was not the moving force in the mooting legislation, so that would not preclude a determination of mootness. That's, I think, the first legal point. The second is the mootness point, which is that if on an ongoing basis individual commanders consider service members' vaccination status for particular deployment or assignment decisions, that's not a controversy that's presented here because those decisions haven't been made yet. So those hypothetical and speculative decisions in a future case might be litigated once an adverse action is taken. But to be clear, Congress's provision in the Act that ordered the rescission only ordered the rescission of a specific policy. It did not prevent the Navy or any other branch of the military from instituting the very same mandate tomorrow. That's accurate, but as I explained to Judge Ho, as the Navy's representative before this Court, I can represent that under the prevailing public health guidelines and understanding of the virus, there is no current intention to institute a universal vaccination requirement. And my last question is the rescinded policy of August 24, 2021, made reference to any administrative or other exemptions established in military department policy. And I take that to be a reference to the exemption, religious, medical, or administrative exemption policy that was being litigated in the lower court. Isn't that right? I believe that's correct. Now, it seems to me that the thrust of the district court's injunction here is that that exemption policy was a sham. It wasn't actually an individualized consideration of religious exemptions as required by RFRA, but instead it was a boilerplate rubber stamping of denials. Now, so, I mean, those exemption policies that the military was following haven't been rescinded, have they? Just this particular vaccine mandate. So the administrative process to consider a religious exemption request is still in place. So is it the same one that's reflected by the record in this case and all the letters that we can read in the record showing here's why we're denying the exemption, all that? 
Well, the Secretary's January rescission memo specifically states that all subsequent requests for religious exemptions will be essentially put on hold because there's no underlying requirement. I know, but the military is going to follow the same policy going forward. I don't see anything in the record that would indicate otherwise, and they had an established policy they were following. To the extent that there's a process for considering religious accommodation requests, that's correct. The so-called 50-step process, right? I know you dispute that the 50 steps are really 50 steps, but it's a 50-step process. Sure, but I think also the existence of a process, vel non, is not dispositive for this court's order. Well, the character of the process was pretty important for the district judge, that it wasn't individualized. But I think there again, this court's decision in Freedom from Religious Foundation is again helpful on this point because there, there was actually a process to consider applications for displaying exhibits at the Texas State Preservation Board, or before the Texas State Preservation Board. And this court recognized that when the board rescinded the underlying rule that was being challenged, regardless of whatever policy or process there was for considering those applications, would not change the mootness of the case. Because as is true here, there's no underlying requirement. Thank you. Can we talk about the provenance of this policy just from the very get-go? Do I understand this all originated on July 29, 2021? Does that sound right to you? I believe it's actually in August. I'm referring to the, to the, the presidential level decision. That, that's what sort of started this whole process, I thought. For, I'm sorry, to issue the vaccination requirement in the first instance? Right. I believe there was, I mean. Are you saying there was something before or something after? No, no, sorry. Apologies. Yeah, I'm not trying to trap you. I'm just trying to. No, yeah. So the secretary had stated in August 2021 to issue a vaccination requirement. Right. Wasn't that in response to the president's directive on July 29, 2021? This is in the briefing. I'm not. Right, right. I suppose that's accurate, Your Honor. Okay. That decision, as I understand it, was about federal employees, federal contractors, families, kids, state and local governments, schools, and also the military. I mean, I know it was about a vaccine policy for the entire country, or at least large percentages of the American. So this was not a military decision. This was a social policy decision. I don't think that's accurate, Your Honor. The, I think as the record actually. I mean, it's literally the July 2021, I don't mean to interrupt, but this is not a military decision. There's no discussion of military readiness or anything. It's a perhaps debatable or worthy vaccine mandate policy discussion we can have, but it doesn't sound in military necessity or military readiness. It sounds in social policy. I don't think that's the policy that's been challenged here. And that's not, and certainly not. But it's what led to all these policies. That might be true, but any politician's remarks on the reasonableness or importance of a particular policy is not necessarily something that will change, at least particularly here, the mootness decision. But I thought you all were invoking the presidential power as something that warranted deference. That's certainly how some of these previous cases have discussed this dispute, that this is deference to the president. I think the... I guess what I'm wondering is, is this deference to the president in his military capacity or in his, in a sort of more social policy type setting? Certainly the former, Your Honor. The cases discussing deference to the military, Orloff, Gilligan, et cetera, explain the importance of deferring to the military's expertise in making... Right, but is the president exercising that policy when he talks about kids in schools and federal contractors and employees? I don't think so, Your Honor, but that's not an issue. But the policy that's been rescinded in this case is based on congressional action. That's true. And 
Yeah, I, I don't really have much more to say on that point. Can I ask about the, because I don't think you all had a chance to respond to the December, this is the other side's December 5th, 2022, 28J. Uh, does this sound familiar? This is the, uh, uh, the statement by the commander from the Naval Special Warfare Group 11. Mm -hmm. uh, from what I can tell, this is uh, somebody high up, or at least reasonably high up in the military, essentially suggesting that the policy of vaccination is bad for military readiness. So I guess it is worth reiterating that that no policy no longer exists. So to the extent you agree or disagree with that commander's personal assessment, that has no bearing on the mootness of this case because the policy You're no big on mootness today. That's well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> respectfully, Your Honor, that's because the appeals are moot. <laughs> um, but uh, I just want to give you a chance to respond if you, if you wanted to. Sure. It's also the case that one individual commander's personal assessment of a military policy is not one that uh, the court should necessarily consider. I mean, that commander's uh, leadership would have uh, determined the appropriateness of a vaccination or of vaccination for that particular service member. I believe it's um, SWCC3. Um, and that, that would not have any bearing on the ultimate decision by uh, military leadership of whether his vaccination would be important as a member of the Naval Special Warfare community. But again, I will reiterate that his personal assessment has no bearing on the case now, particularly because there's no case or controversy with respect to that particular religious exemption request. Absent further questions, I will save the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Thank you, Counsel. Hacker. Yes, Your Honor. May it, may it please the court. Heather Hacker for Appalese. When the plaintiffs enlisted in the Navy, they vowed to support and defend the U.S. Constitution. But the Navy, unfortunately, has shirked its responsibility to do so here. The Navy is unlawfully discriminating against the class members' sincere religious beliefs by applying a sham process for religious accommodations that does not comport with RIFRA, as the DOD IG recently acknowledged. That harm continues today because even though the mandate has been repealed, the Navy will continue to use vaccination status as a requirement for the class members to be able to fulfill their job duties. But it's even worse now because the Navy will not even consider the plaintiff's requests for religious accommodation anymore. This case and this appeal is not moot for the simple reason that the preliminary injunctions at issue do not enjoin the mandate. They enjoin policies that have not been repealed and will continue to be used by the Navy to inflict constitutional injury on the class members. I'm going to start by refuting the defendant's mootness arguments, and then I'll move on to addressing the merits if I have time. I want to start right off the bat by disputing what Mr. Ross said. I think it's wrong to say that the repeal of the mandate has magically erased all of the Navy's many policies regarding COVID vaccination. That is simply not true. And to see that that's the answer, all we have to do is look at the DOD memorandum, which specifically states that all other guidance related to the mandate is still in place. That includes the ability of commanders to make deployment, assignment, and other operational decisions based on vaccination status. Moreover, that memorandum makes clear that the secretaries of the military departments, including Secretary Del Toro, are to cease reviewing religious accommodation requests. All NAV 923, which was also included with defendant's um, supplemental letter brief regarding mootness, 
similarly says that the Navy will continue to make deployment assignment and other operational decisions using vaccination as the criteria. So I don't think it's fair that Mr. Ross would be able to represent here that the Navy will not consider vaccination in making those decisions because their policy clearly states that they will. Moreover, Secretary Del Toro- You have evidence that they have? Well, this is all kind of a new thing here, Your Honor, but I would like to dispute Mr. Ross's assertion that the plaintiffs have no evidence that they're continuing to suffer harm because that's not true. All of the class members pursuant to NAV Admin 9322, which we discussed on page 14 of our brief, they've all been transferred to non-operational units because they're not vaccinated. And the policies that the district court did enjoin, so we're talking about the ManMed uh, 221-21 and 256-21, all that the new NAV Admin talks about is that no new adverse actions based on the guidance Will be, will be begun, but that guidance specifically does not rescind those policies. It rescinds another policy, so I think that reading of it, if, if it rescinds one policy and it doesn't specifically rescind those, it means that it, it's going to keep those in place. Now, what does that mean for the class members? Well, those policies, um, you know, if the plaintiff's requests for religious accommodation are no longer going to be even considered, they'll be considered vaccine refusers. And under those policies, the Navy can continue coercing vaccination by withholding earned promotions, defrocking officers. If we make a determination that, that these injunctions are moot, is there anything that would prevent you from litigating the issues you raise now before the district court? Well, because that determination doesn't moot the entire case. It just moots the injunction as to these policies. We, we certainly could litigate these issues before the district court, Your Honor, but I'd like to push back on the idea that these injunctions are moot because in the actual language of the injunctions, which is at uh, 2419 and 4155 of the record, they don't enjoin the mandate. It says, and this is the first injunction, defendants are enjoined from applying ManMed Article 15-105 NAV, NAV Admin 225-21, Trident Order 12, which that one has been repealed, and NAV Admin 256-21 to the plaintiffs. Defendants are also enjoined from taking any adverse action against plaintiffs. And then the class-wide injunction similarly states, defendants are enjoined from applying ManMed, NAV Admin 225-21, Trident Order 12, and NAV Admin 256-21. So those policies are still in effect, Your Honor. Those policies can still be applied against the plaintiffs. And the plaintiffs have already suffered. So this injunction doesn't deal with those policies. Is that what you're saying? So the, the mandate itself, the repeal of the, the mandate. The injunctions that have been issued already by the district court. Yes, these are injunctions. Don't treat that those other policies. Issued. Yes, against those policies. And those policies are still in place. They have not been affected. Yes. Those injunctions don't deal with the other policies. Is that what you're saying? I'm trying to understand what you're telling me. Okay, I'm sorry. Yes, these injunctions enjoin only those policies. And those, the injunctions are not moot because those policies are still in effect. So you want us to issue a broader injunction? You want us to issue an injunction? What, no, you, what relief are you seeking here then? If, if the injunctions that, that are the subject of this appeal don't do what you need them to, what you want them to do, what are you asking us? 
affirm both injunctions because both of those injunctions are still doing work here those injunctions are still prohibiting the application of those policies which still exist and have not been repealed against the class members we agreed with you that the injunctions are not moot would we and we and we were inclined to affirm would we nonetheless have to alter the injunctions in some way to reflect the congressional rescission of certain policies so the injunctions currently as written do not um, I mean the opinions obviously discuss the, the mandate but the injunctive language itself does not refer to the the mandate the court certainly could you know explain that in its opinion or in its injunctive language um, but the the injunctions I want to be clear the injunctions are still doing work here um, so there would be a reason to affirm them um, so those so those class members are still suffering harm and a big one that is provided for by those same policies is if a class member has um, failed to earn uh, bonus pay or special operations pay um, and that they a lot of them are in this situation because they were removed from their operational commands and they're not getting credit for that anymore the Navy under those policies can recoup that money from these people so this is pay that they've already received that their family has already relied on and the Navy can come back and try to take that away same thing for people who went to um, school that the Navy paid for um, especially in relation to their job in the Navy um, the Navy can come back and ask them to pay back those funds that they paid for that education and a situation that the SEALs specifically How much money are we talking about? I'm trying to remember what I, what I read. But in terms of all this recoupment of past costs, it's not just denial of pay or denial of jobs going forward. It's a clawback. Right, Your Honor. Yes, and that's why it's very significant. And, you know, it, it depends on, you know, What amounts are we talking about, if, if you know? So in the, in the case of the SEALs, one of the things that they can recoup is the cost of training. It costs a million dollars to train a SEAL. So I think there's some discretion. Is that further military readiness to come after a SEAL to charge them a million dollars? We've heard a lot of talk about how this is an important policy to, to further military readiness. Right. Well, as Your Honor mentioned. Imagine the answer is no. <laughs> no. No, I don't think so. I mean, and I think it makes it clear, as Your Honor already touched on, that endorsement from the commander of the reserve unit of the SEALs he makes clear that the policy was actually detrimental to military readiness because he's lost so many people and people that he wants to be able to deploy but for this mandate and he can't and you know specific to SWIC 3 which was the person he was talking about he was saying you know this person is very qualified I want to be able to to deploy him I think he's at low risk you know these are the like elite warriors of our country they're basically elite athletes they're not at high risk for, for COVID, especially with, you know, he goes through at length, you know, all of the current science and everything. And he says, you know, this is impeding my ability to do my job as a commander. And that perspective is not just a personal opinion of the commander. It is the relevant consideration, according to the Vice Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Lesher, as he testified in his deposition, he said that when you're looking at these accommodation requests, he thought that the commander's perspective is the most important because the commander's perspective is what is the facts on the ground. That's the person that knows who you're talking about, knows where they fit into the unit, 
knows what their skills are, um, knows what their advantages are, knows all the rest of the people that he's, he's working with here, knows the objective of the mission very closely. You know, these high up guys in DC at the Pentagon, they're not intimately familiar with all of those details. And so that's why Admiral Lesher said that those considerations are very important here. Does but it, with respect to Admiral Lechner, Lechner um, has um, the record changed since um, the uh, stay motion before the Supreme Court? Yes, Your Honor, significantly. So the actual Supreme Court um, stay opinion was very brief, but there was a concurring opinion by Justice Kavanaugh, and he specifically referred to Admiral Lesher's declaration, and the Solicitor General's briefs also relied very heavily on Admiral Lesher's declaration. But as we discovered when we deposed Admiral Lesher, he admitted that he really had no personal knowledge of the assertions that he made in that declaration. The people who would have the details of the things that he was testifying to, he did not meet with them before he signed the declaration. Um, we asked the Navy to produce the documents that he relied on, and uh, they gave us some documents. We asked him about them, and he said, well, I didn't look at anything before I, I didn't look at any of these things before I signed the declaration. So Is that part of the record before us? Yes, Your Honor. That's all part of Admiral Lesher's uh, testimony that the court supplemented the record with here. Um, the other, the other, I'm sorry. Do you have a record site for that that we can use? Uh, I don't, but I know it's in the higher portion of the, the record, the, the later portion that's in the, it's at the end. I'm sorry, Your Honor. Um, but another fact about the record changing significantly since the Supreme Court considered the case, that was in March of last year. And I think that the situation with the virus itself has changed significantly since then as well. Um, you know, now the Navy is saying that they, even they've acknowledged that based on the science that they're not going to require everyone to be vaccinated, but that's different from what they were saying before, where if they didn't have everyone vaccinated, that would uh, be a detriment to worldwide deployability and would harm national security and mission readiness and all of these, this parade of horribles that they had told us before. Um, and I think the science shows that that is simply not the case anymore. So it's a very different situation than the Supreme Court looked at in March of last year. My understanding is the focus of the district court's opinion or opinions or orders in this case was on the deficiencies in the exemption process, that RIFRA requires an individualized case-by-case -case consideration of religious exemptions and the, the evidence of the process was that this was nothing of the kind. And so my question is, what, what does the rescission of the mandate change about the exemption, the existing exemption process, if anything? Does it make it better? Does it make it worse? Does it leave it alone? That's what I'm trying to understand. So I think it makes it worse, Your Honor, because the, the DOD memorandum um, states that the, and also the, the new NAV admin also state that the requests for religious accommodation, they're not even going to be considered anymore. So they've submitted these. A lot of them have been sitting there for well over a year, and they're not even going to consider those requests anymore. So we have a situation where they're still, at, by their own admissions, going to still apply these. I mean, Secretary Del Toro himself said, we're going to have, as a result of this, we're going to have some people that, be, that can be deployed and some people that can't. So obviously, they're going to make that a criteria for deployment. Those are his own words. 
So you're going to have this requirement here for people to be able to do their job duties, and then the Navy is not even going to consider accommodation requests anymore because there's no mandate. I think the situation is worse, actually. It went from a 50-step process to a zero-step process. Exactly, Your Honor. Exactly. So I think we've discussed the mootness issue. I would just like to draw the Court's attention to the Speech First case because I think that that case is helpful here. It was a similar factual situation where the university there had repealed some of the objectionable policies, but it still had a policy in place with an overbroad definition of harassment. And so this Court there said that that was only partial voluntary cessation, and so the case was not moot. The Court went on to discuss even if— But nobody here is arguing that the case is moot. Isn't that right? I'm not arguing your entire case is moot. We're talking about these injunctions. I believe that DOJ is arguing that the entire case is moot. We'll see what they say today. They're supposed to file something in the district court asking the court to dismiss the case as moot, and I believe that's what they said they planned to do. But— Well, the logic of their position would lead you there. I'm sorry, Your Honor? The logic of their position would lead you there, I would think. They're saying none of these policies exist anymore, so— Right, yes. There's no point. Yes. Yeah, that's what they're claiming. The point is the burden is on them, right? Given that there was a live controversy and the issue is now mootness based on the government's unilateral conduct, I thought our court and the Supreme Court has been repeated that this is a stringent, heavy burden on their part. Yes. They have to prove mootness, not the other way around. Right, exactly. They have to show that it's absolutely clear that the conduct will not recur, and as I believe the court pointed out earlier, the fact that the NDAA does not prevent them from instituting a new mandate tomorrow, and the fact that the Navy and the DOD itself disagrees with the fact that they were forced to repeal the old mandate, I don't think that they can make that showing here. As you mentioned, that's a high bar, and I don't think they can meet that with those facts. You know, even if the harm had stopped, which I think we've discussed the fact that it has not, we believe that the harm would be capable of repetition because of, like the case of Roman Catholic Diocese, the Navy could just reinstitute that policy again. So the case is clearly, and these injunctions and this appeal are clearly not moot. I have a couple of minutes left, and I'll turn to the merits, unless the court has any further questions about mootness. We've touched a little bit on the process. I did want to say some things about the abstention issue and also class certification. I think that the court, in the stay opinion, the court already questioned whether Mendez had any continued applicability in the RFRA context. This court, to the best of my knowledge, has never applied Mendez in the RFRA context, and I don't think it would make sense to because RFRA is a super statute and Mendez is a judge-made abstention doctrine. But I think that the court here could specify that Mendez does not apply in the RFRA context, as the Sixth Circuit recently did in the Doster case, noting that it had never been applied in a case where there was a statutory right of action. And then just one quick note about class certification. 
We contend that DOJ waived or forfeited the argument that the class certification should be before the court because they didn't brief jurisdiction. It's not automatic. They haven't cited any cases that show that review of a class certification is automatic when there's an appeal of an injunction. And they failed to brief pendant jurisdiction, which this court has held is rarely exercised. So it requires more of a showing than one sentence and one case that was decided before Rule 23F, which requires them to specifically permission for permission to appeal. With that, unless the court has any further questions, I'll reserve the rest of my time and just ask the court to affirm both injunctions. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Hank. Rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honor. I think I'll start, unsurprisingly, with mootness and then just address a few of the points that plaintiffs made in response. First, I can say without reservation that the policies that the district court enjoined here, four specific policies, no longer have any operational effect. The Navy is, the Secretary of the Navy is subject to the authority, control, and direction of the Secretary of Defense. The Secretary of Defense has declared that there is no vaccination requirement and service members cannot be subject to adverse actions because they are not vaccinated against COVID-19. Any action that the Navy has taken that is at all in tension with the Secretary of Defense's statement is inoperative and ineffective. Does that include deployment decisions? That would be a separate question, Your Honor, in a subsequent case. We don't know those hypothetical situations that might take place down the road. That would not defeat the mootness. I don't understand your answer. Yeah, so that's because any particular decision that an individual commander might make with respect to a service member's fitness to serve in a later case would be something that could be subsequently litigated. But those questions are purely hypothetical right now and would not defeat the mootness. But bottom line is it could happen, is what you're saying. Sure, just as the governor... Your point is just it's not part of this case. Just as the governor of Louisiana could institute another stay-at-home order in Spell. You've mentioned Spell many times. I'm looking at Spell. Spell's a very different case. That's a case where the order had a built-in expiration date. Whereas here, this is, as you just said at the outset of your remarks, this was under the opposition of the department. But there was nothing stopping from the governor of Louisiana from instituting another stay-at-home order. And in fact, this court explained in Freedom from Religious Foundation that where it is true that normally the party who is arguing for mootness has a high burden to establish as much, mootness is the default when there is a legislative change mooting the policy that has been challenged. And that's a direct quote from that decision. Mootness is the default. And plaintiffs also invoked the Speech First decision. And I think footnote 7 of Freedom from Religious Foundation makes clear that the context of Speech First were specific to universities. It's particularly voicing some frustration or concern that university presidents might change their mind in response to litigation and say one thing or another in order to moot the case. But the court explained that those kinds of decisions with respect to universities are very different than when with respect to governments and there is a legislative change mooting the underlying policy. Second, just with respect to monetary damages, if anything, that underscores that additional litigation might proceed in district court, but that is not a question that would defeat mootness of these appeals. It's also worth noting that plaintiffs are unable to identify any amount that's actually at issue. I want to follow up on the earlier discussion. Is the government's position that the appeal is moot or the entire case is moot? 
The position before this court is that the appeals are moot. Okay, but what about... District court, are you going to take the position that that case is moot too? That is a question best resolved in the district court. So you can't represent to us that the case in the district court is moot or not moot? The government hasn't made a filing yet in that case, and so I think it would be premature for me to make any representation to this court before we are actually able to make that filing. So we have a number of hours before it's actually due, so I don't want to get in front of those litigators. But irrespective of that, just to return to the training point, I just want to point to page 1874 of the record, in which the chief of staff of the Naval Special Warfare Command specifically stated that he is unaware of any policy in his 27 years of service that would require a service member in the Naval Special Warfare Command to repay trainment costs in the way that the plaintiffs have described. So yes, it is expensive, as you might expect, to train a Navy SEAL, but he is unaware of any circumstance in which a SEAL is subsequently involuntarily separated that he or she would be obligated to repay those training costs. That is simply inaccurate, just as a matter of Navy policy. Well, if I understand what you're saying, let me see if I understand it. The rescission of the August 2021 policy, are you saying that would prohibit this action to require repayment of training costs? That's my understanding, Your Honor. Based on not being vaccinated against COVID? That's my understanding, Your Honor, yes. And indeed, the Secretary's rescission memo makes clear that any adverse actions on any service member's record that was taken because they had not complied with the vaccination requirement will be removed from their records. And that's beyond the requirement Congress had instituted in directing the Secretary to rescind the requirement. So whereas Congress only required the military to take down the vaccination requirement, the Secretary has gone one step further and explicitly provided that all adverse actions on service members' records, be them fitness reports or certain letters of reprimand, will be removed from their records. Just to finalize, because I'm really confused now on the recoupment issue, your plaintiffs have, I think, made clear in their complaint, as well as in their papers, that recoupment of a million dollars worth of training was absolutely threatened in this case. Are you saying that they are just completely wrong on that? Or you're saying just on a going forward basis, you're not going to do that going forward? I'm saying they're completely wrong on that, Your Honor. And it's unprecedented, is what I heard. Correct. All right. Thank you, Counsel. With that, we urge the Court to vacate the injunctions and dismiss these appeals as moot. Thank you. Thank you.